1: Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives.
0: Welcome back to Latter day Peace Studies. I'm Ben Peterson and Christopher Hurtados here with me again this evening. We are going to be covering Matthew chapter 6 and 7. This is the second part of the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about Matthew five and Luke chapter six last time, which sort of cover some of the same type of material. Now we're delving specifically into Matthew with chapter six and seven. This is sort of the second half of this discourse termed the Sermon on the Mount, a collection or a collage of sayings of Jesus that are formed into the single discourse, this sermon, as we call it. As we proceed through the reading, He says one thing and then you kind of move on, and there's not always, sometimes there is, but there's not always a direct link between the previous saying and the next. And that's sort of some of the evidence that you see for the source of these being Q. We talked about this when we did the intro podcast, this theoretical source of Q that is the sayings of Jesus that is used within these gospels like Matthew and Mark and Luke in order to fill out the structure of the narrative, things like this sermon. As I was reading through this, I had to go back and look up a quote from Richard Rohr that I think came from his book, Jesus's Alternative Plan. Rohr says this, he said, The more we talk about Jesus, the less we do what he said. That's how the ego fools itself. We can't say, thy kingdom come, unless we're willing to say, my kingdom go.
1: Nice. There are quite a lot of these sayings that look like sayings from the Lost Gospel Q that has been reconstructed. That's one of the sources of Mark. Matthew and Luke take Mark as one of their sources, so we get a lot of these sayings of Jesus. For the listener interested in going into the Q Gospel, there are a few additions I'll mention that are trustworthy. The Lost Gospel Q, the original sayings of Jesus, by Marcus Borg. Another is The Lost Gospel, The Book of Q and Christian Origins by Burton Mack, that's published by Harper One. And finally, if you'd like to look at the Greek, The Sayings Gospel Q in Greek and English with Parallels from the Gospels of Mark and Thomas by James Robinson, and that one's published by Fortress Press. The other thing that shows up a lot in these two chapters is the Gospel of Thomas, there are a lot of comparisons we could make with the Gospel of Thomas. Now, we're not going to go into the Q Gospel or the Gospel of Thomas. We invite you to look into those yourself now. The the Gospel of Thomas is available in editions from Elaine Pagels and Marvin Meyer are a couple of trustworthy editions. And then, of course, there's Ivan Lelou, and he has commentary included with his translation. The other thing is, as you've indicated, Ben, or at least hinted, it isn't necessarily the case that all of these sayings were said at one time. These are things that, that it looks like Jesus said. And one of the reasons we can say that is because they show up in the earliest gospel, Mark, and in the gospel Q, right? This lost gospel that we've reconstructed or that scholars have reconstructed. I think I said this last time. I've read things like the Tao Te Ching in one sitting. That's easy to do, it doesn't take long, it's not long. And it's a valid way to read it maybe to get a sense of what it is, what's in there. I've done the same with the Lost Gospel Q. I've done the same with the Gospel of Thomas. I've also spent more time in those texts. And I think you pointed out, Ben, that those you know, authors writing these texts know that because they're written down, we can take our time in going through them. So it's not necessarily the best way to deal with these sayings, to read them all at once the way we're doing it here, But that's what we've been assigned to do, and so that's what we're doing here. So I'd encourage the listener to take time and just read one saying at a time and really think about it.
0: Yeah, these are meant to be digested one at a time, so to speak.
1: So you remind me, Ben, of a quote from Francis Bacon. He says, some books should be tasted, some devoured, but only a few should be chewed and digested thoroughly. This is definitely one of those books. The Bible in general is one of those books. But certainly, when we get all these sayings of Jesus thrown together in one chapter or a couple of chapters, we really should take our time. These are things to ruminate over. Ruminating comes from the ruminants, animals with multiple stomachs. I mean, the cow chews on its food, right? We can think of chewing on these sayings and then swallows them, brings them back up, you know, chews the cud again and again. That's the way to go through these. Unfortunately, we can't do that on the podcast. So we'll just go through all of them here in one go. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your father, which is in heaven. What struck me about this verse, Ben, is that what's going on here is dikaiosune. I mentioned last time that this idea of righteousness, which is a favorite term of Matthew's, is translating which has to do with justice and I said it's a political concept meaning it's about how we treat others whereas ethics is about how we act in and of ourselves you know so ethics applies to making decisions about how to live your life so if you're on a desert island like Robinson Crusoe you have choices to make should I build a shelter yes or no Should I build it out of this or that? Should I do it here or there? Should I do it now or later? What should I eat? How am I going to? All of these questions are ethical questions. They're questions about how you live your life such that you would preserve and better your own life. But when it comes to how to treat other people, that's not a concern for Robinson Crusoe because he's alone until Friday. When Friday shows up, now he has political concerns this word here, alms, that's translating dikayosune, which is interesting, right? So, it shows us that this is about how you treat other people.
0: One of the things that comes out to me about this first verse here, Christopher, you know, in terms of righteousness is that true righteousness here in the examples he's going to give as well is inconspicuous, right? It's not meant to be shown or, or put in people's faces. It's about focusing on your own personal understanding and relationship with that ethic and not concerned with how other people view that.
1: Yeah, and it occurs to me, hearing you say that, it's a lot like the Stoics. It's very Stoic, right? The idea that you should do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, what we call in philosophy a deontological ethic, meaning a duty ethic, You do the right thing because it's the right thing. You don't do it to get some reward. You don't do it for any other reason than it's the right thing to do. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Yeah, their reward is
0: they have the glory of men. Their recognition,
1: yeah. Hypocrites translates here, it might help to know that it means it's the same word that's used for an actor on the stage, a play actor, someone who's pretending. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. This translates literally something like thy better hand know what thy right hand doeth, which is interesting because I thought the better hand was the right hand. and in, in many cultures, that's the case, right? that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now this verse got my attention because, wait a minute, I'm getting a reward and it's in open? That's not that different from having the glory of men. It turns out that the part that says that he shall reward you openly, right, reward thee is in the most trusted manuscripts. The openly part is not in all of them, and it is in the least trusted manuscripts. Yeah. So it it really makes more sense to me to leave it out. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Same idea, right? But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy father, which sheath in secret, shall reward thee. King James Version, openly. I'm leaving that up. Yeah. So there aren't really closets necessarily. And some people think, in terms of going into your own room, you don't really have your own room in this time. Maybe if you're very, very wealthy, right? But not the followers of Jesus. Well, there are wealthy followers of Jesus. Actually, many of the women who supported Jesus were wealthy, right? And when they were not welcome in the synagogues anymore, the Christians actually met at the homes of these women in the beginning.
0: One of the things about the alms, Christopher, back in verse 2 and so forth, is alms here for Jesus are not just about giving money, right? They are that, but they're also about performing actions out of mercy, out of compassion, out of love. These things have to come from an inner place, of conviction and desire and love, not just be about that outward action. Yeah. And the same goes with the prayer. The prayer is almost this sort of symbolic representation. It's not just an outer thing, but you're actually going into some innermost chamber. That's why we say closet or room. You're alone place, right? Right. Where no one can hear you, no one can see you. I was thinking, man, that is not many places anymore. You know, like everything seems to have some sort of interruption or something for so many people. Where do you actually get privacy to pray in secret anymore? I'm sure people can find it if they search for it. One of the places for me is driving in my car alone.
1: Wait, you're driving with your eyes closed, Ben? (laughs) Only in between breaks. You know, going back into the closet again. Most people don't have closets at the time. There is a storage closet, a place to store supplies and valuables. So you could think of this as your pantry, maybe, or your broom closet, you know, but again, that's taking it literally, right? The point is to go within, I think, in terms of going within, right? The kingdom of God is within you.
0: Yeah. I mean, if we were to liken this to some sort of temple analogy too, right? There's the holy of holies, right? It's just the innermost secret place. And so that can be metaphorical with us. But then if, you know, we're just trying to have a moment of, of prayer, sometimes that might be out loud, sometimes that might be inner, having that be a secret private place is helpful to that experience.
1: And that's a really good analogy since that place in the temple is the place where God dwells on earth. The idea is to connect with the divine, right? But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. I want to say a couple of things about this first. The heathen here just means the Gentiles. Heathen is like the Greeks calling other people than Greeks barbarians. Here we're going to call people other than our own people heathens. Now, it's interesting because We're taught in this week's reading the Lord's Prayer, quote unquote. That's what we call it, the Lord's Prayer. And it doesn't look a lot like LDS prayer. Not really, right? Would you disagree, Ben?
0: No, I think that's true. There's not the formal same opening that we use, and he doesn't end it in his own name, right? So.
1: (laughs) Right. There's that too, yeah.
0: I'm just not even sure that
1: there's giving thanks first and asking second. You know, there are thanks expressed. There are things asked for. On the one hand, the Lord's Prayer is formulaic in one way. On the other hand, the LDS form of prayer is also formulaic. And it's interesting because the didache, that's around maybe first century, some say maybe second century, is telling us that we should actually perform this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, three times a day. Well, that sounds like vain repetitions from a Latter-day Saint perspective, right? We have something against, it seems, set prayers, except for the sacrament prayer The baptism prayer, maybe, a couple of prayers that are set prayers. We read about the Ramiumtum in the Book of Mormon and we think, oh, those people with their vain repetitions, that's not about us. I say it's about us. I look at the way we pray as Latter day Saints and I think that we do use a lot of repetition. So I don't think vain repetition has to be set prayers necessarily. And I do find value in saying set prayers. The Lord's Prayer is deeply meaningful to me, having been brought up Lutheran.
0: In the phrase, vain repetitions, a repetition doesn't have to be vain, right? There's things that aren't repetitions that are vain, and there's things that are repetitions that aren't vain. Repetition's part of the issue, but really it's the vain, meaning devoid of true core intention.
1: And that's the key, right? Is the intent of the heart, I think. And this is where I've just suggested my kids and I model for them, let's take a deep breath or two or three before we start saying the same things we always say in prayer. And sometimes that works. So yeah, vain, I was going to go just like you did. I was going to go back to Kohelet, to Ecclesiastes, and and remind us that vain means empty and meaningless. So empty and meaningless repetitions. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. So why pray? It is about aligning our will with the Father's. It's not about asking for favors or making deals, I give, I get. This isn't like playing Settlers of Catan, right? Yeah. (laughs) After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, meaning Mm -hmm. sanctified. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Here's where that Richard Rohr comment you gave fits in, right? That quote, if your kingdom is gonna come, mine has to go give us this day our daily bread. This is verse 11. I'm not sure the word should be translated daily. It really is tomorrow's bread. The Greek is not a common word. It could be daily, but it could be tomorrow's bread. And so that's interesting, right? To think about not just today's bread, but tomorrow's bread.
0: Yeah, the clear allusion for me is to the manna in the wilderness here, that they're given every day, right? And it only lasts for a day except the eve of the Sabbath, where they have enough for that day and the next. The idea is that you, you have just enough for the day, and when you need more, God will give you more.
1: And so with today's bread, it's tomorrow's bread I'm praying for. I hope that just like today, the manna will come tomorrow, right? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, I'm reminded here again of, of the Jubilee year, which is, seems like a really great idea. I don't know that it was actually carried out. I don't think it was. I don't know that it could be. It's something for us to think about. I, you know, There's one to actually spend some time on this verse. What would it be like if we forgave debts and our debts were forgiven? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The idea of not being led into temptation by God, we're praying to God not to lead us into temptation is a problem for some people. There's probably a Joseph Smith translation that changes this is there?
0: And suffer us not to be led into temptation. If that makes you feel better, great. In another note that I have in the Latter-day Saint King James Version, it does say that the Syriac text says, do not let us enter into temptation. So, it's a a little different type of take on this, right? Rather than ascribing that God would lead you, it's God not letting you enter into temptation. So yeah, it's a little, theologically a little, probably a little less problematic.
1: (laughs) Right. Now the Syriac New Testament, some very few scholars believe it's the original and the Greek's a translation. Most scholars agree that the Greek is the original, the Syriac is a translation. The nice thing about the Syriac though, because Syriac is a Semitic language, it's a lot closer to the Hebrew, right? Some of the expressions that are used, they just make more sense even translated into English from that version. So, that's worth reading too.
0: NRSV verse 13 says, and do not bring us to the time of trial.
1: Sarah Rudin does mention an ordeal, right? Or a trial. That's what we're dealing with here. Yeah, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This last part, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever is not in most of the manuscripts. It's probably something that's added on. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. What's their reward? they appear to be fasting. A flip side to this is you might offend people who have no choice but to fast. In other words, people who have not what to eat. That's part of the context, I think, too. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which is in secret shall reward thee. Again, King James Version reads openly, I would leave it out. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Now, we know how moth and rust corrupt, right? When it comes to clothing, the moth will eat it. When it comes to metals, they rust, some of them. I don't think the Greek actually says anything about rust. This is about things being consumed in some way.
0: Yeah, it's like an eating.
1: yes. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. In both ancient Greece and Rome, there's the concept of the miser, who's someone who just hoards things and can't really enjoy them because he's always worried about them being stolen. So there's a connection here with that concept. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. This is one of those transitions where it feels like Verse 21 and verse 22 have nothing to do with each other, and we're reading all these sayings. It's like I'm reading the Tao Te Ching, and I really should take my time and think about them, just mentioning that as an example. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, now there's a reference here to the evil eye, which has to do with envy. This is a concept, I don't know if listeners are familiar with it. It's something I grew up with in South America where I don't really believe in it. It's superstition, you know? And yet, culturally, there are certain ways in which I act upon that belief as though it were a belief. You know what I mean? So for example, in 1998, when the Z3 2.8 came out from BMW, I bought one and I'd pull up somewhere and park and people would admire the car. And I would say, do you wanna take it for a drive? And I'd offer them the keys. In my culture, where there's evil eye, same thing in in the Middle East. Mm Masha'Allah. The idea is if you admire something of mine, I offer it to you. Otherwise, the evil eye will fall upon it and something bad will will come of it. As a matter of fact, in Latin America, if someone says something nice about your baby, if you tell me my baby's cute and you don't touch my baby, I will run after you and get you to touch my baby because of evil eye, right? Uh So there's something there in this verse that has something to do with that culturally. It's funny because in America, don't touch my baby, right? Germs, diseases, whatever, stay away from my baby. You can tell me my baby's cute, but don't touch my baby. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and mammon. If you're wondering what mammon is, it's not a place. It's not like Babylon. That's what it sounds like, right?
0: It's not the devil.
1: No, it's not the devil. It's the Aramaic word for money, wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth or money. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Now, see, this is one of those transitions that makes sense, right? You cannot serve God and money Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink. I don't know that or what ye shall drink is in all the manuscripts, but it makes sense to add it. Nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? This kind of argument that's presented in verse 26 about the fowls and us being better than them, it's very typical of the time. sounds like something Rabbi Hillel would say. Rabbi Hillel is the most prominent rabbi of the time. He's a Pharisee. We'll have another saying here coming up where I'll go back to Rabbi Hillel again.
0: Christopher, this phrase, take no thought, in the King James Version, I feel like is it's a rough translation for our vernacular today. And I think it obscures what's really going on. The NRSV does a better job translating this, and I'm curious what Rudin says as well, because it just says, do not worry. Take no thought, that KJV translation, in my opinion, doesn't work very well for our vernacular today. It's not saying don't think about it. It's saying don't worry about it. Don't be preoccupied or anxious about it.
1: Now, that's how I'd read it, but I'm used to reading Elizabethan English. In a more vernacular translation, a more current translation, Sarah Rudin, she actually says, just as you did, Ben, don't worry about your life as to what you'll have to eat or what you'll have to drink is in brackets, because again, it's probably not in the original, or about your body as to what you'll have to clothe it. Isn't life a greater thing than food and the body a greater thing than clothing? So yeah, don't worry about it. Verse 27, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? couple of comments on this verse, what's a qubit? This is typically the measurement of the forearm or maybe the forearm and the hand. And yet, the word that's being translated here, qubit, could actually be translated one hour. And so the stature is interpolated based on the translation one qubit, but it could be instead one hour unto his life. Which of you by taking thought can add one hour unto his life? Either way, we can't do these things, right? No amount of worrying is going to make me live longer. No amount of worrying is going to solve anything.
0: Right. Yeah. So NRSV for this verse says, and can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? There it is. Does worrying actually accomplish anything?
1: It just doesn't solve anything. Nothing is so bad that worrying can't make it worse. That's a paraphrase of another saying. (laughs) I think it's about complaining, right? I guess worrying is a form of complaining. It's a, it's a complaint that one keeps to oneself, right?
0: Or a complaint about the future. Yeah, a complaint about something that isn't reality yet. We just think it might become reality, so we're already complaining about it. And like, wait till it happens to complain about it, maybe. <laughs> and why
1: take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They toil not. Neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Again, very much like an argument from Rabbi Hillel. Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So it's through justice, right? When we seek justice, and when we talk about justice, again, it's a political concept. We're talking about social justice. All of the prophets of the Old Testament were concerned with this. Jesus is concerned with this. Compassion, feeding the hungry healing people, right? social outcasts, bringing them in. It's about how we treat others. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof.
0: So I've grown up with that phrase a lot, but I do like how NRSV translates this better. Again, in our vernacular, I think it hits home a little more. It says, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today.
1: Exactly. Rudin translates, so don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Today's aggravation is plenty for today. Same spirit. Matthew 7. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. I really like this translation, Ben. I wanted to point out what the Greek is like, because there's a repetition of sounds, and the King James Version seems to have that. The original is, and So you get that same kind of consonants, right? Yeah, there's some cool
0: alliteration there. Good stuff. You know, the judge here, again, there's lots of discussion about this word, I think, when these verses come up. Oh, yeah. To me, the main point about this is this type of judgment is a condemnation, and this isn't talking about a discerning type of judgment. This is talking about a condemnatory type of judgment.
1: That's a really good point. I think that puts it in its proper perspective.
0: There's also the passive voice used here, you know, be judged. A lot of times in scripture, we saw this in the Old Testament a lot, when the passive voice is used, you don't know the subject, right? You don't know who is doing the thing, right? Who is doing the judging here? He says you'll be judged. Typically, that does imply God is doing it, but that's not necessarily a required interpretation. Sometimes it might imply like society or reality. Or I think one of the things that comes up for me in these verses as we continue is how you see yourself, like how you're going to judge yourself. And that comes up as he proceeds in his discussion about judgment.
1: I like that second interpretation, especially, but the first one's valid too. Here's another version of it. Karma, baby. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? You have this speck in your eye, Ben. Hang on, I'm having a hard time seeing it because I've got this log in my eye, but it's that really that speck in your
0: eye that I'm worried about, buddy. This is fantastic hyperbole to prove a salient point. To the verse before it, as I was saying about judgment, here often the judgment that we use and impose upon others will ultimately be the judgment that we have to impose on ourselves because we cannot see to judge another person until we are ready to judge our own faults.
1: Amen. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, remember this can be, or sister. Adelpha is a brother, but there's really no need in Greek to use the word for sister here. It's just brother or sister. Let me pull out the moat out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, thou play actor, thou pretender, First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the word out of thy brother's eye.
0: The NRSV translates the word neighbor, which I think is interesting, you know, in light of the commandments that come later, right? The love thy neighbor type of thing.
1: Neighbor rather than brother. Yeah, neighbor rather than brother. That makes sense. Verse 6, give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again, and rend you. Now dogs and swine are both unclean animals, and pearls are among the most valuable things, right? So you have the pearl of great price, right? Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find knock and it shall be open unto you for every one that asketh receiveth and he that seeketh findeth and to him that knocketh it shall be opened or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread will give him a stone or if he ask a fish will give him a serpent there's another unclean animal a serpent not to mention it could be poisonous if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. I have some comments on this verse. This is what we call the golden rule. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. That's the golden rule. To say for this is the law and the prophets I think is inaccurate. I think the law and the prophets give us the silver rule, not the golden rule. The silver rule is that which you find hateful, don't
0: do it to others. Sort of the inverse of that, huh?
1: Yeah. Rabbi Hillel was told to give the whole Torah while standing on one foot. And that's what he said. That which you find hateful, don't do it to your neighbor. So that's the silver rule. That's all don't do. This is do. This is the golden rule. And this golden rule is found in other traditions too, right? It's found in Buddhism, it's found in Islam. It's a good rule of thumb. Now, maybe it shouldn't be taken literally because I go around buying everybody books for Christmas (laughs) because that's what I would want somebody to give me. Maybe we should find out what it is they would like. So another formulation might be something like that which they would like done unto them, do unto them, right?
0: It's also a general guiding principle in terms of how you treat others, right? It's not like you think about a specific thing Right. You think, okay, is this how I would like to be treated? Not is this the gift I would like to get, but is this how I would like to be treated in a general way? So I would like to receive a gift, therefore I give a gift. Is yeah, that the idea? Like that. Yeah, that might yeah. be the idea, right? And as your understanding of how to treat yourself better evolves or progresses or improves, then you are then able to understand how to treat others better, Right. Yeah, this is definitely a very wise statement, because it can be applied to any level of understanding of a person, from a child all the way up.
1: That's a good point. I still can't picture a better way to treat myself than to buy myself a book, though. (laughs) Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. It's important to realize that straight here is S-T-R-A-I-T, not
0: S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. doesn't mean without bends or without curves. It means narrow. Narrow, yeah. It's just using two words for the same thing, yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah, we have here straight and narrow. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it.
0: The NRSV translates this verse 14, For the gate is narrow, and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So it's possible you know that they're just trying to get a different kind of, of meaning here.
1: Let's compare the NRSV with Rudin, too, since we're comparing translations. She translates, Go through the narrow gate, this is verse 13, Because the gaping gate and the roomy road are the ones leading away to destruction. And there are plenty of people going in through that gate. I actually looked at the Greek because I saw what she was doing with the gaping gate and the roomy road. It's not in the Greek. Hmm. But it's cool
0: alliteration.
1: It is. Yeah. We saw something like this in the text earlier that I mentioned is in the original, right? It's not here, but it's valid to do that as it is something that the authors would do, right? Gaping gate, roomy road. That's because the gate that leads into life is narrow and the road there is full of crushing hardship so that there are few who find life. So she's agreeing with the NRSV translators. Okay. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. You can't fake this stuff, right? The people who are faking, they'll be found out, right? Because the fruits will prove them pretenders, right? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Lord, Lord here just means, it's like saying, sir. I mean, it's, it's a term of respect, right?
0: Mr. Mr.
1: Right. Yeah, it doesn't mean necessarily that, that Jesus is divine. You know, for most reading this would take it as a sign that he is divine, but it could just mean Mr. Mr., right? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name? Have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. These ones who work iniquity—does the NRSV have it as evil doers?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: I think it's about breaking laws.
0: You know this phrase here, "I never knew you." I thought it was interesting. You know, Joseph Smith translation has "You never knew me," which. Kind of fits with some other later statements of Jesus where he says, you know, how knoweth a servant his master who he doesn't serve, right? The idea here being that it's not just about me not knowing you, it's about you not understanding who I am.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, those evildoers, looking at the Greek, you know, they're just anomian. They're people who are breaking the law. Criminals. Well, we're not talking about that kind (laughs) of law, right? We're talking about these are nomos, right? Not really lex. Okay. Right. So we're talking about the norms or the mores of society. And so we could be talking about the law in the sense of the instruction of the Torah, right? Could be that. So workers of iniquity, evildoers, a little heavy-handed, a little too theological for me. I mean, it just, we're talking about people who are, but now if they are laws that are instruction from Torah, you could say that's evil. But again, now evil has all this theological baggage. Again, these verses need time to ponder, right? And to let them sink in and to consider them. Look at different translations. Maybe do a word study based on the Greek, right? You don't have to know Greek to do a word study. You can Google the verse plus interlinear in your search, find the Greek, click on the Strong's number, find out what is the lexical range of this word. This is something we've talked about before by lexical range. I mean, what are all the possible interpretations of this word? There's not going to be only one. As a matter of fact, we're talking here about casting out devils in verse 22. The original has daimon. You know, I was doing my studying and I got that daimonis are always evil spirits unless they're foreign gods and maybe one or two verses in the New Testament. And I just thought, okay, why? Well, a diamond, you know, Socrates talked about having a diamond, and it sounds like he's talking about his conscience. You know, it told him always to do good. Yeah, Maybe it's the context here, right? That if we're casting them out, why would you want to get rid of a, a good diamond? By the way, good diamond, that's eudaimon, right? Eudaimonia is the word that we translate happiness. Happiness means having a good diamond in you, a good spirit.
0: Hmm. You know, these verses kind of end, ironically, for me because throughout the verses he's talking about the acts, the things that people do. They've gone and they've done all of these great works. And then at the end he calls them evil doers. And it's sort of driving this point home that for Jesus, it's not just about what you do. It's about the intention that goes into it. And this is what he's saying about the trees and the fruit. It's not just what it looks like, it's what is actually at the heart. What is it truly inside? It is.
1: Verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. So just hearing things and not doing them right, or this is the right thing to do, now I know. That kind of knowledge isn't going to do you any good unless you put it
0: into action, right? You have to put it into practice. So here we have him basically denoting all of these statements as wisdom teachings, right? As wisdom sayings, because he's just talking about if you do these, then you'll be considered a wise person.
1: That's right. Yeah. And so these genuine sayings of Jesus, right? These sayings that we find in Matthew and Luke coming from Mark, coming from the lost gospel Q, found also in the Gospel of Thomas, they're wisdom literature. And so Each of these, again, each of these verses, or some of them are pericopes, you have a few verses that are related, some of them are unrelated, they deserve more time than we're giving them. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, the one that's built upon a rock, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, another translation is a stupid man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Those last two verses, we've heard this before, right? People are astonished at the things Jesus says because he's not just quoting from the scriptures. Even if he is quoting from the scriptures or making allusions, he's doing more than that. He's not just quoting scriptures. He's speaking from authority, meaning he is the author of these statements. We're each authors of our own lives. We write our own story. Jesus here is speaking in that way. He's telling you straight from his own soul, not just from quoting scriptures. And that's this week's reading. Do you have anything to add, Ben?
0: The invitation here is you know, we read these scriptures, we quote these scriptures. Can you make them your own in a way? Can you go and do what it takes to have the experience that means that you truly have internalized and understand what's happening with these things? Because again, you've had that experience. We talked about Jesus going into the wilderness to be with God or to be tempted, right? And that that was one of these moments, among others, where he is having these true experiences with God, gaining this authenticity, this true experience where he can speak with authority, same as authentic, same root. Right.
1: So, because he has experience Therefore, he speaks with authority. We think that authority means having to do with hierarchy. If we go back to Noah Webster, 1828, where he really built his dictionary, well, he built it by ripping off about 75% of Samuel Johnson's dictionary, lost <laughs> trash talking Samuel Johnson, but we'll let that go. I'll pass over that in silence. But the other thing he did is he, he based it on the language of the King James Bible, And one of his definitions for authority is having experience, right? I can speak with authority because I have experience. I don't have to be in some hierarchy and be above you to tell you something. I can just tell you with authority, not from hierarchy, but from experience. And so he does that. You're right. He goes off. And by the way, he does it multiple times. He goes out to the wilderness to be with God, to tank up, right? That's where he gets the power that he's using to heal. As a matter of fact, there's one story we already read where he finds out that people are coming to be healed and he runs off. And you think, (laughs) wait, where where are you going? These people are coming to you to be healed. And the answer is he's going to tank up. He needs the power from his time with God. We need that too, right? We need to be with God to get the power to have the authority from that experience.
0: Amen. Verily. That's right. Verily. (laughs) Amen. Thanks for listening. We appreciate all the support, the comments, the questions. Keep them coming. We have a lot of gratitude for those who contribute to the Latter-day Peace Studies project, all they do to help us. Especially thanks to Michael for the editing work that he does on a weekly basis for this, makes this possible. And thank you, Christopher, for all that you contribute and do for this as well.
1: And thank you, Ben. And thanks to all the LDPS team of volunteers and to all of you who donate. And as Ben said, for those of you who are giving us feedback, we get so much positive feedback. If we get complaints, we take those into account too. We'll do what we can to make this better. For
0: Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben
1: Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thank you again for listening.